Do your kids want more Mystery Kids episodes? Are you sick of the same ones playing every single day? Well, we have the perfect place for you. Head over to become a Patreon today. For $5 a month, you'll get two more bonus episodes, plus episodes that are already in Patreon. Episodes like The Deepest Hole on Earth, The Great Emu War in Australia of 1932, The Bombing of Hawaii's Volcano, The Dancing Plague, The Ohio Grassman, and some animal fact episodes about the pangolin, the ai, the axolotl, and the taipan, plus much, much more. This makes a wonderful birthday present for your kids and gives you way more to talk about as a family, which is the whole point of the Mystery Kids podcast. So for $5 a month, you can get two more bonus episodes plus all the past episodes. To become a patron, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Mystery Kids Pod and sign up today. Thank you so much for your support. On this episode of the Mystery Kids Podcast, we'll be discussing the mysterious events surrounding D.B. Cooper, the Sky Pirate. Welcome to Mystery Kids Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a really fun one. I have been researching and studying about D.B. Cooper, which I had never heard of, and it is an absolutely fascinating story with tons and twists and turns. So we ready to go? On the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, a nondescript man calling himself Dan Cooper approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon. He was cashed to buy a one-way single ticket on flight 305 bound for Seattle, Washington. Thus began one of the great unsolved mysteries in history. Cooper was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s, wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt. He ordered a drink, some bourbon and soda, while the flight was waiting to take off. A short time after 3 p.m., he handed the stewardess a note indicating that he had a bomb in his briefcase and wanted her to sit with him. The stunned stewardess did as she was told, opening a cheap attache case. Cooper showed her a glimpse of a mass of wires and red color sticks and demanded that she write down what he had told her. Soon she was walking the new note to the captain of the plane that demanded four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills. When the flight landed in Seattle, the hijacker exchanged the flight's 36 passengers for the money and parachutes. Cooper kept several crew members and the plane took off again, ordered to set a course for Mexico City. Somewhere between Seattle and Reno, a little after 8 p.m., the hijacker did the incredible. He jumped out of the back of the plane with a parachute and ransom money. The pilots landed safely, but Cooper had disappeared into the night and his ultimate fate remains a mystery to this day. So this happened back in the 1970s. I actually looked up what security was like in the 1970s, and basically there was no airport security. So today, airport security is really tight, especially after 9-11. Um, security has become really important in airports because a lot of damage can be done with an airplane, and also a lot of people can um, pass away if an airplane crashes. But back in the 70s, it really wasn't a big deal. 
asshole. So what happened was back in the 70s, people just had their carry on baggage and luggage, but it wasn't ever looked into. Nobody was checking to see what was inside your luggage. Your family was welcome to walk you straight to the plane which was all fine and dandy, except if you were going to take over the plane. So back in the late 1960s to 1970s, um, so it was between 1960 to 1974, there were 240 hijackings or attempted hijackings between the U.S. and Cuba alone. So hijackings are when someone decides that they want what you have, like if you are driving a vehicle or you're driving a plane, um, and you decide to take over the route or where it's going or start to drive it yourself. So in this time frame, there were 240 hijackings crazy. That's so many people who decided to take over the plane. Um, They were so common, the public grew totally desensitized to them. That meant that they would talk about them. And it was just like, not a big deal. Like, oh, yeah, um, we were on a plane that got hijacked and went to Cuba instead of heading to California. (laughs) And they were like, oh, okay, uh, how was it? Like, it wasn't a big deal, but it kept happening and happening and happening. And so they decided that things had to change. So that is where they started to create higher security, where you had to, people had to look into your planes and luggage. And then also that they, um, what they started to do was they would put FBI snipers and um, they would put that like plain clothes FBI agents um, on these planes randomly. So like you never knew if you were going to be sitting next to an FBI agent. So between that and starting to get more um, information from people and I mean, people could just literally show up like 30 minutes before their plane took off and be like, oh, hey, my name's Bob. Uh, Bob and I would like a plane ticket and they would pay for it and nobody would look at IDs. Nobody would like you, you could, you could fly pretty much anywhere and nobody would have a clue who you were. So now they started checking IDs and making sure that you were who you say you were on the plane and things became a little bit more um, direct about in 1974. So that's when they decided to put more security into airports. And it's interesting because the 1960s to the early 1970s was known as the golden age of plane hijackings because they happened so frequently. I just personally can't imagine being on a plane and thinking I'm like going home or I'm going somewhere special. And they're like, oh, hey, we're headed down to Mexico just so everyone's prepared. I, oh my gosh, that would be It would be a scary experience. And luckily, most of these hijackings during this time weren't um, incredibly dangerous, um, as in um, they would mostly just try to take money or get people to pay them. But it wasn't many um, lives being threatened, um, unlike 9-11, which um, was it it was absolutely horrible. I remember I was in um, sixth grade. Was I in sixth grade? No, I was in seventh or eighth grade when 9-11 happened. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was an absolutely horrific day. And so we're coming up on the 20th anniversary. And that just 
blows my mind. I feel like it literally was just the other day. But these hijackings, for the most part, weren't um, a real threat of people's lives. It was more trying to get money from other people. So November 24th, um, 1971. No, yes, 1971. Um, it was the day before Thanksgiving when the, this man bought an airline ticket from Portland, Oregon, to go to Seattle, Washington. And he actually used the name Dan Cooper. Um, the FBI is not sure how he became to like he became known to everyone as DB Cooper. They actually think it was like a typo and everyone just kind of ran with it. So his name that he presented was Dan Cooper. So he hijacked the plane. So what happened was he sat down calmly. He had a bag and another bag with him. And he sat down calmly and he gave a note to the stewardess um, and she just tucked it in her pocket and he's like oh no you want to read that um, I have a bomb and so she's like oh my goodness so yeah she made it he made her come sit with her he showed her the bomb equipment and then she took the new note up to the pilots letting them know what he demanded so he demanded that they would land then in Seattle And at that point in time, he wanted $200,000 in $20 bills. That would be a lot of money in like a small form. Um, So he demanded that much and he demanded four parachutes. So they got to Seattle. They unloaded all the passengers, which I believe it said there were 36 passengers. He got the money and he took some of the crew with him again. And so he told the pilot that they were flying to Mexico and that they had to keep pretty low in the plane. And so they knew at that point that he was going to be jumping out of the plane because they usually don't fly as low as he was directing them. So he took a parachute and a bag full of cash and he jumped somewhere. He jumped out of the plane, but it was nighttime. Um, so he was never heard from or seen again. He took 200, thousand dollars and yeah he just literally disappeared so there are plenty of theories of what happened to db cooper because it was such a strange story so we're going to jump into some of those theories what could have possibly happened to him and um yeah it's it's just the strangest event and there's so many theories of what could possibly happen $200,000 back in the 1970s is equal to day of about one and a half million dollars. So with inflation, that's basically how much money he had taken and jumped out of the plane with. Nine years after this incident, there was a young boy who was camping with his family on Tinabar, which is a stretch of the Columbia River in northwest, it's northwest of Vancouver. So what happened was he found $6,000. It was money that was bound together by elastic bands. They were digging this fire pit and he found this money Um, and it had kind of fallen apart. And so they were looking at it and they turned it in. And what happened was the serial numbers were the same. So um, money has numbers on it. Um, to keep the like the money straight and to make sure that the money is made correctly. 
So they looked at the serial numbers and guess what? They matched up. So they only found $6,000. So that wasn't all of their money. So what happened was they went and they started digging through all the sand, trying to find any clues of what could possibly happen. Cause this is the only thing that has shown up from it. So the FBI began to believe that the money had actually washed down the river. So they believed that it was about 18 miles from where Cooper's drop zone had been and it had gotten buried in the sand. Um, it's literally one of the only clues that has been found. And so they, they went through and they started trying to figure out like, okay, did the money fall when he jumped out of the plane? Did he send it in the river on purpose. I mean, I wouldn't personally send $6,000 down the river on purpose, but you know, when you have money to spend, I guess you can do what you want with it. One man that was looked at to be D.B. Cooper was named Jack Kofelt. He was a longtime criminal who actually died in 1975, but he seemed to have a lot of knowledge surrounding the Cooper skyjacking. So he actually did a lot of um, auto theft and he was serving time in prison where he met an Air Force pilot named James Brown. So Colfeld and Brown became friends and they were released in 1952 and 1955. After they were released, Brown followed the straight and narrow. He became an engineer. He started a family and Colfeld also gave up robbery, uh, but he decided to go towards big cons. So that's where you try to take other people's money. So one day, Cole Feltz called up Brown in 1974 and said, hey, let's go on this road trip to Mount Hood in Oregon. Um, I want to look for D.B. Cooper's money. So he insisted that James bring his son. Um, Cole Felt was 57 years old and he felt like he needed someone young um, to help them kind of search the wilderness. So they left their home in Georgia um, to pick up Cole Felt in Missouri and they headed to Oregon. Along the way, Cole Felt confessed that he was actually D.B. Cooper. Um, he didn't answer too many questions though, even though they were super curious, like what happened? How did you do this? Anyways, he kind of shied away from answering any of the questions. So they went to the Mount Hood and they spent a few weeks looking around the eastern slope of Mountain Hood. So they found the burnt remnants of a parachute that Colt felt said he had torched with this mixture, but they never found the money. Colfelt said he'd placed the ransom inside a large plastic bag and then with cords cut from the parachute, he cinched the top of the container closed and he made this sling that he looped over his shoulder to carry out with him. However, when his parachute opened violently, um, the green slack slipped off his shoulder and was lost to the forest below. So basically he was parachuting out of um, the airplane and the cinch broke and he lost to the bag of money that he had put all together. So they kept looking and looking and looking, but Brown eventually told them like, oh, I also have three accomplices that might be looking for the money. And they did not want to be invested with all of this. So they left quickly so that they didn't have to be part of this. So in 1983, um, 
the Brown came forward and kind of talked about this whole story of heading backpacking and looking for this. Um, but nothing really came of it. They were never able to find anything and he passed away before anyone else was able to talk to them. So the FBI said, uh, no, it's not him. Um, they think that he was just trying to score or make a deal or, um, have some fun and pretend that he was DB Cooper, but they don't believe that he was actually D.B. Cooper. So it was not Kofeld. So their next suspect is named Ted Mayfield. Um, so he he was a former special forces, a skydiving champion and a pilot. So he would know how to skydive. He also owned a skydiving school at the Pacific Parachuting Center. So Mayfield also had an impressive criminal history. I don't know if I would call that impressive. I would say like a not so good criminal history. So on the night of the hijacking, there was actually six different callers that said, this is it. We know exactly who it is. It's Ted Mayfield. So of course they had to check him out. So they checked out Mayfield and D.B. Cooper and um, they had a lot of similarities, but physically Mayfield was too short and had too little of Cooper's bodily characteristics. So they said that he was between, I think it was like that he was taller and the way that he spoke and looked and um, Mayfield just didn't fit those characteristics. They came across a new person that seemed like the perfect suspect to be D.B. Cooper. So on April 7th, 1972. So what this is about uh, eight ish months. No, seven, six somewhere in there. A couple months after this whole thing happened, um, this man named McCoy, his name was Richard Floyd McCoy. Um, So he boarded a United Airlines flight 855. And it was also a Boeing, Boeing 727, which is exactly what um, D.B. Cooper was on. It was on its way from Newark, New Jersey to Los Angeles, California. It had 85 passengers and a crew of six piloted by Captain Jerry Earn um, under the alias James Johnson during a stopover in Denver, Colorado. So the aircraft was a Boeing 727, um, which is the exact same that D.B. Cooper had taken. Um, So McCoy escaped mid-flight by parachute after giving the crew similar instructions as Cooper had. So McCoy had obtained $500,000 in cash and carried a novelty hand grenade and an empty pistol. Um, He also passed a note just the same as B.D. Cooper did. He did a lot of things that were very similar. So they began investigating McCoy following a tip. Um, The driver had picked up McCoy hitchhiking at a fast food restaurant where McCoy was wearing a jumpsuit and carrying a duffel bag. McCoy had also described to an acquaintance how easy it would be to carry out such a hijacking. So this motorist saw him and gave him a ride and was like, huh, it's kind of interesting. He was wearing a jumpsuit like he jumped out of an airplane and he had this big old duffel bag. I hope he paid him for the ride. Um, But McCoy, like he'd also talked to people about like, oh, that's a great way to have a hijacking. I'm 
like I could totally see that working. So following fingerprinting and handwriting matches, McCoy was arrested only two days after the hijacking. McCoy was on a National Guard duty flying one of the helicopters involved in searching for the hijacker. So he was literally part of the investigation trying to search for the hijacker. So inside his house, the FBI agents found a jumpsuit and a duffel bag filled with cash totaling $499,970. So let's see, he spent $30. Yeah, he spent $30. I want to know what he purchased with that $30. That would, I, that would be very fascinating. I want to know that. He always claimed he was innocent, but he was convicted of the hijacking and he received a 45-year sentence. Just an interesting side story. He actually escaped... On August 10th, 1974, he created like a fake handgun out of dental paste and was able to get a garbage truck and crash it into the prison gate and escaped. Um, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) This is just it's just insane. I, I don't even know. There's hijacking. There's escaping prisons happening left and right during this time. Anyways, three months later, they found him at Virginia Beach in Virginia and were able to take him back to um, the prison. The FBI ultimately dismissed that McCoy's heist was the same, like that he was DB Cooper. Um, they said that it was just a copycat crime. He actually, they actually believe that he just really studied the Cooper's case and plotted his own skyjacking, and his happened to be very successful. Um, I mean, except for the fact that he was caught a couple days later, which we're kind of grateful for. One of the biggest reasons that DB like that he wasn't identified to be DB Cooper is that he had been having Thanksgiving dinner with his family in Utah the day after the DB Cooper's famous heist. So it it would have taken a lot for him to get out and be back in Utah in time for Thanksgiving dinner. Also, another interesting thing to go along with this case is that DB Cooper actually had a black tie that had a tie pin on it, which is this kind of like, I don't know, crossover. It like holds the back of the tie together. I I don't really wear ties, so I I don't know how to explain it very well. But anyways, it was just a clip-on tie that he took off right before he jumped from the plane. And they actually found a DNA sample on the tie, and it has been around for all of these years. So they were actually using it to eliminate a lot of the suspects because there was actual DNA evidence in this case. Although it is an interesting thing to note that um, in Richard Floyd McCoy's case, the tie pin is actually identified as one that's commonly worn by male students at Brigham Young University. Um, McCoy had attended BYU for a time before dropping out and enlisting, and then he later re-enrolled as a student, and he was actually studying law at BYU at the time of his arrest in 1972. So, So it's quite interesting that a similar pin was also found that the one that D.B. Cooper had 
Anyways, such an interesting little connection there. Although McCoy was never officially eliminated because of DNA evidence. Um, they just put in the time frames and don't believe that it happened. But the McCoy family refused to cooperate and offer a DNA sample. And so they never were able to fully eliminate him um, with DNA evidence. So there were many people that ended up coming forward and saying that they were B.D. Cooper or that um, their uncles, fathers, cousins, there was a lot of people that came forward to be D.B. Cooper. But again, they don't actually know who this was still today. So in um, July um, 2016, the FBI officially announced that they'd be no longer allocating active resources, so like giving money to continue the D.B. Cooper investigation. This didn't mean that they had solved the case of Cooper's identity. Um, the leading theory by investigators is that Cooper did not, in fact, survive his jump. Although his extensive knowledge of the plane systems initially led police to believe he was a professional skydiver, they've since concluded that the jump in in such weather conditions over a ruthless patch of the Washington wilderness in the middle of winter while he was wearing business casual attire would was a risk no expert would be stupid enough to take. And the fact that the bag of matching ransom money was found left at the stream um, and dug up later supports that he probably did not survive. And so with 45 years worth of tips and theories, the real name of America's most famous hijacker and sky pirate still remains a mystery. Porter's Ponderings. Who do you think D.B. Cooper is? What do you think happened to all of the money? I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a fun one. I really love unexplained mysteries and um, crime type things. So this one's one of my favorite ones. I actually had never heard of it until a couple months ago. And then I have done a lot of research. So I was happy to jump in and do this episode. So thank you so much for listening. Don't forget if you want to see any of the pictures or anything, it's on our website. And I will have all of that in the show notes. And we'll see you next time on the Mystery Kids podcast. Thanks for listening.